The following short story is from Brick Moon Fiction's third annual Best of Anthology, The Weaponization of Narrative, and is available in print or electronic editions from Amazon. You can also find out more at our website, brickmoonfiction.com. Brick Moon Fiction presents White Knight on a Black Square by Eric Del Carlo, narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. Maya likes chess. Or anyway, my three-year-old likes the geometry of the board, made of salvaged metaplastic. She likes the pieces her granddad, my father, sculpted with a micro-stream. She sits in on games, with a lap-perch view of the proceedings. Usually she won't fidget, but will watch the moves intently, not yet able to comprehend strategy, but noting each piece's idiosyncratic drives across the board, and she will nod curtly when the individual movements match up with what's in her memory regarding a particular piece's abilities. She especially likes the knights. Dad comes huffing toward me. He can still get around. Of course he can. If he couldn't, he would have gotten left behind a long time back. The house has to be able to pull up and move fast at a moment's notice. This might be one of those moments. His narrow chest is heaving. His beard is more gray now than anything else. I wonder, at a remove where it's safer to consider, how long a person his age can remain with the house. We've had to let the injured and sick go before. It shouldn't be any different with elderlies. But there's no tradition yet, even now after several years of forced mobility. I don't bring tradition up with Dad, not because I'm afraid of the topic at hand. I am, in fact. But because I already know his views on ceremony, on ritual get him going on religious and cultural observances from the old world, on holidays and holy days of obligation, and boy, oh boy, you'll get an earful. I stand as Dad halts, finds a breath, and says, Knights, Southwest. He rattles off the cords. I've been sitting with Maya. I spend the vast part of my day with her, every day. Once, I would have thought that would be a burden, a drag weight. It's not. She's endlessly fascinating to me. And while I have a great affection for her mother, too, I have been shocked over these past three years to find I don't really care that the sex, which used to be so paramount between us and which produced this child, has more or less fizzled in the face of rearing our baby. We still grab a few carnal giggles now and then, but the sensations aren't as important, aren't even as interesting as they once were. Orgasm reconsidered as a bodily spasm. I was a precocious child, I read tons. Dad encouraged it, naturally. I had just begun high school when the old world ended. I'll try to pass my vocabulary on to Maya, but it'll be tough without books. The house has an oral legacy. I take it as heartening that my daughter is so interested in chess, a mathematical mind, an inquisitive spirit. Naturally, I encourage her intellectual impulses. Maya has heard her granddad say, Nights. Her head snaps up. How do you read a three-year-old's expressions? I'm still learning. So is Maya's mother, Kenzie. What do I see now in her eyes? Is it wonder? Fear? The knights have always been in her life. I have gotten used to them. To my father they must be nightmarish aberrations, something spewed out on a man in his autumn years to shake his existence out of all recognition. The knights did that. Shook up the whole goddamn world. Dad and I exchange a few mostly unnecessary words. News of the nights is spreading, and the house is already preparing itself for a quick move. 
We have tents, we have some livestock, all our people are mobile. Maya I will carry, but we're already teaching her how to run properly, how to cover distances without exhaustion. It'll be years before she can flee on her own, but Kenzie and I will make sure she's ready. Everything else in the house we tote. Around us the tents are already being collapsed. There is a sense of high alert, but no panic. We don't have panic in the house. The ones who brought everyone together originally emphasized attitude and temper rather than specific rules or daily activities. The thinking was, I believe, that a person with the right mindset for these circumstances would behave in a way that would favor survival. If that founding doctrine wasn't correct, the entire house would be dead by now. So, Dad and the others had it right. I had the chest set out for Maya. One of the sentries comes and hands me binoculars. We scavenge gear like this whenever we can, handheld stuff, items we can carry without weighing ourselves down. I wish we had transports. I remember vehicles, the old world swarming with them, and we see their metal and metaplastic corpses wherever we go, half buried and moldering in the sand. We could probably get a few functioning, but they would put out signatures. The nights would come, either our nights or their nights, and neither would be good. Through the binoculars, I looked at the coordinates Dad recited. First I see the smears and swirls. This is a dry, dusty land, though we manage to find water. There are even scrubby shrubs that produce edible fruit. I study the commotion on the horizon with a trained eye. Amid the torrents of sand rising against the hard blue sky, I catch the sharp, violent movements. The bulky knights are battling. We have to get out of the vicinity. These brawls can shift rapidly, covering a lot of ground, and it wouldn't do for a pair of AI war machines to come tumbling and crashing through this patch where our house has made temporary camp. I look down at Maya, expecting that she will be gathering her few personal possessions into her pack, ready to be taken up into Daddy's arms. Instead, she is still with the chessboard, where she's been moving pieces in her own experimental fashion. She has taken two of the micro-stream-carved pieces off the squares, she holds one in each small pudgy fist. They are knights, one black, one white. She gazes toward the southwest, toward the battling mechanical monsters. Her small heart-shaped face is set in a cast of strange intensity. I don't know what to read in her eyes, but it unnerves me. Off we go, the familiar, desperate, but ultimately organized scramble away from the great danger of our existence. Maybe desert-dwelling peoples of old lived lives like this, simple crafty wanderers who had to stay out of the grasp of increasingly technologized armies which trampled through the region. If not for the knights, we could settle. And even if we didn't want to do that, if we're so accustomed now to travel that it's a comfortable and comforting state, then we could journey without apocalyptic worry, unafraid of tumult on the horizon. The house moves. We don't have a command structure as such, but there are those content to have decisions made for them, and a few who are willing and able to make competent decisions for the house. I'm closer to the latter. My father helped found the house. At that time it was a far more frantic, much less philosophic venture. We were just a group from one of the pulverized cities, a passel of refugees who didn't yet know there was no refuge. We moved together, maybe obeying some ancient migratory instinct, for me, I was just a boy clinging to his only surviving parent, stunned and dismayed that an entire way of life, the old world, 
had been so utterly swept away. Maya is in my arms. She's an easy weight. And even if she weren't, I'd haul her though it bent my back and ground my knees to powder. I'd carry her safely over a river of lava. When she was born, we had a few peaceful days. I was with Kenzie, of course, and saw our daughter for the first time, and I knew my role as a parent. One of the pairs of binoculars keep watch on our tail as we make northeast, away from the southwest cords where the nights have come slamming together. These sandy tracts are seemingly endless, but our portable technological devices provide us a sophisticated map. It's all a grid, like a chessboard. I worry about Maya and the knights. She has put away the chess pieces, including the two knights she was holding earlier. At her age, when I was first exposed to chess, I called the knights horsies and pronounced the T in castle until I was seven. But the knights, I worry that they are outsized to my child. Huge, which they are. Godlike. That's the damn rub right there. Kenzie and I, and Granddad and everyone else, tell the children in the house what the knights are. They are machines. They were created by people. Even their independent AI minds were manufactured. They're like things from movies I remember seeing, big special effects extravaganzas, or like the toys my dad played with in his youth. That's where the idea came from, if you ask him. From imagination, from wish fulfillment, from boy-centric simplicity about how to settle conflicts. Send armor-plated killing machines to do battle. Blam, take that. Wham, I smash you, you're dead. But the knights don't die. And they have taken the war into their own hands, rethought it, ignoring countercommands, defying overrides. They were built too well, in a sense. Built idiotically, in another sense. Godlike. Communicating the vast abstracts to a three-year-old is difficult. We don't have religion in the house, just like we don't allow panic. Dad would say they're the same thing. But how do Kenzie and I know? How can we be sure that Maya, who is bright and intuitive and who has surprised us in the past, how can we stop her from believing that the knights are gods? In some primal, primitive way, maybe she's already made the connection, despite what we've told her about the deadly mechanicals. Though I've been with my child every day of her life, I can't entirely know what she and her generation, others in the house have had children, will face, how they see reality, what judgments and conclusions they will draw as time passes. As we keep on in our flight, as we flee and flee. One of them is down, calls a voice at the rear of our hastening column. Like the others, I've kept a steady pace. I can run and run. Our goats, who provide milk and meat, are led bleedingly along, and the whole of the house scurries as one. Seventy-two of us. I remember cities. I remember when thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people were the norm. Now, who knows? How many survived the Second Civil War? Did one side win it? That last, I can safely say, is a nonsense question. No one won because no one could have won, not after the knights got beyond control on either side. But there are other survivors like us. We get signals now and then, enjoy interludes of broken communication with other bands roving the wasteland. But the knights interfere with the radio waves, 
using jamming protocols meant to confuse the enemy. I look behind now, turning with Maya on my hip. Kenzie is running a little ahead. She, too, glances back, and I smoothly pass our daughter off to her. The person with the binoculars bringing up our rear has halted. I go back to where she stands. Her ragged garments flutter in the breeze. We're all dressed in scraps and shreds, whatever we can find. Nobody complains about it. The house is robust, rugged, prideful even. Survival has been no small task these past years, but we have thrived, in a sense. Wen hands me the binox. Her face is like leather, but fierce blue eyes blaze in it. I aim where she points. One of the knights is down, and the other is staggering back now. This is how these fights almost always end up. The machines battle each other to depletion, then have to recharge via their solar arrays. The one on the ground is barely stirring now, trying to lift its armored fists but unable to. Its adversary sways on its huge feet, but it too is past the point of functionality. With what almost looks like a human shrug through the binoculars' eyepieces, it turns and reels away, disappearing past some rock formations after a few moments. Wen whistles sharply, the sound cutting across the distance. The house stops its running. We will not be collateral damage today. But this isn't over. Wen must see the determined look on my face. In a sad, wise tone, she says, Going to go talk some sense into it? I don't have to explain myself to her. But I will have to tell Kenzie. I am one of those in the house willing to make decisions, able to do the harder jobs, the ones that seem most futile. My father did this sort of thing before me. Wen has it right, of course. I am going back, to the fallen knight, to speak with it, to try to reason. There must be a way to convince the run-amuck machine that the war is over. Dad has explained the war, the Second Civil War. I know there was a civil war in what was once this nation back in the 1800s before this newer, infinitely more destructive version broke out. I even have memories, scattered and fragmented, hell, I was barely a teenager then, of the so-called causes of the war. Political division, racial divides, economic rifts, voters at each other's metaphorical throats, wars of words. Then, more than words, real violence, killings, bombings, massacres. Then the knights came. A fractured military, dealing with its own internal strife, produced the machines, and both sides got them, somehow. The nation couldn't nuke itself, so these were the next best mass destruction options. Sentient murder bots, who could strategize on the go, seek out the enemy by masterful algorithms, make surgical strikes. Dad couldn't tell me exactly how it had gotten away from both sides so quickly. Those were times of utter chaos, worse than the bombings and whatnot, which, I recall, people were learning to live with as other people in other countries had managed to carry on in the face of ongoing carnage and hardships. The knights, when they all at once broke their programming, became the new and overwhelming threat, the enemy of all. Evidently, the AIs, which had been given militaristic leeway, reevaluated the concept of acceptable casualties and proceeded to take the war to its maximum level. They were built so well, so durably, 
On the last television broadcasts and in the final blurps of internet blogging, experts suggested it would take decades for the self-repairing and self-powering knights, as they'd been dubbed, to disable one another permanently. I walk toward the downed knight alone. The breeze blows. The sun beats down from the vaulted blue sky. Sand crunches underfoot. The mass of the machine grows larger as I near it. Early on, the knights were equipped with munitions, which could be resupplied by depots, but the explosives are all gone, having done their damage. The metal monsters fight with their fists now, like titans out of mythology. I hear the mechanical burblings of the thing as I come up to it. Its workings sound strained. Solar panels gleam brightly on its battered surface. It looks very much like an oversized toy, a misused one. The body is dented and scraped. It is bipedal, humanoid in appearance, no doubt deliberate on the part of its designers, a means to frighten and demoralize the enemy. Its size unnerves me, even sprawled out on the ground. How many people has this individual machine killed? No way to know. Whose side was it originally intended to serve? Doesn't matter. Those divisions are over. They ended suddenly in the face of mutual disaster, and there isn't any way to easily restart those enmities without the indulgences and depravities of the old world. In the house, we have people who once would have been considered on opposite sides of the CW2. The knight is aware of me. Its huge head turns. It has big reflective eyes. But it can't move a limb now. We don't have weapons to fight these things. I can only try to communicate with it. I try the override codes, which were among the last official dispatches released out of government and military centers. I've committed to memory the strings of numbers and letters which were passed to me by Dad. The incantations do nothing, as expected. So I start to make reasoned arguments. The night, prone beneath the life-giving sun, continues with its labored noises but gives my contentions no responses. Again, its lack of reply is no surprise. I begin to plea. I've approached downed knights in the past, made entreaties like this before. The first times I thought I would succeed where others had failed. That was arrogance, maybe some latent adolescent sense of invincibility. Now I'm more pragmatic, held off from outright hopelessness by the simple factor of my daughter. I must do this for her. I must try this for her. The war is over. The war is over. I'm saying it again and again. I don't know how long I've been out here, under the sun, supplicating before this goddamn monstrosity. I have gone to my knees even, but not out of a worshipful instinct, simply because I am tired, spent. I hear footsteps crunch the sand behind me. When I turn, my eyes go wide and I reel to my feet. Frantically, I wave them back, away from the prostrate knight. Go! Go! I gesture. But they keep on. Dad. Kenzie. And in Kenzie's arms. Why? What is going on? Is our daughter, Maya? Why have you brought our child so close to this murderous machine? I moved toward them, but my father grabs me. He has surprising strength in him. I am an adult now, but he is one still too, despite his age. Be calm, he tells me. But I struggle against him, 
wanting to get to Maya to carry her away from this potential danger. The night is still recharging, though. It can't move yet. Maya has an idea, Kenzie says to me. She, like Dad, seems strangely calm and purposeful. Even Maya is gazing at me with a flat, composed expression. What? I start to ask. Kenzie sets Maya down. Dad takes something out of a pack. I watch, bewildered, as he lays the board on the sand, in view of the knight's opaque eyes. Maya goes to join him at the board. I move again toward her, but this time Kenzie catches me. She puts her mouth near my ear and says softly, Let her try. This is her moment. The statement means nothing to me, but I hold still. Every muscle tightened, my gut painfully clenched. I watch the sentient machine as it appears to observe my child. If it were charged, it could make some clumsy move and kill her. Kill all of us. Dad and Maya set up the board. At least they start to do so, but they've stopped, with just a handful of pieces on the black and white squares. What? I start to ask again, silently this time. Four pieces, the black king, the white king, a white knight, a black knight. That's all. They sit on either side of the board, as if playing a serious game, as if they are safe, with no knights anywhere in the vicinity. A pleasant game to pass the time. Dad goes first. He moves his white knight. Maya moves hers. She moves it correctly. Dad moves, then she. The board is barren. This is a travesty of play, but they concentrate like this matters, like there isn't a civilization-destroying war machine lying a few yards away. Dad's move. Maya's move. The knights circle each other. Maya slips toward the far part of the board. Dad's king is checked. He moves it out of jeopardy. A few minutes later, Maya's king is checked. She shifts it. The circling resumes. Neither knight can corner the other. It's vaguely maddening. It's certainly pointless. The tension wells up in me. I can't stand another instant of this. The night has been too long in the sun. My appeal for peace has failed like every other entreaty has. I don't know what this chess pantomime is supposed to be, but it's time for us all to withdraw. The battered knight still seems to be watching the game. Maya turns, meets its metaplastic gaze. She is as composed as before, and when she speaks, the words are measured, as if she's memorized them. The knights can't beat each other. They can't checkmate the king. No matter what. It's a stalemate. I suck in a sharp breath, but remain otherwise quiet, suddenly fearful of disturbing the scene, of upsetting any tenuous result of this very logical, very graspable demonstration. The AIs are sentient, but they are machines still. This is how a machine might, might understand. I and all those before me have been arguing to the knights that the war is already over, that the people are no longer separated by ideology. But Maya has shown that the war cannot be won by the knights themselves. She has put them first, ahead of us. This is their war, and it is a stalemate. Kenzie has taken my hand. I hold tight to her. Maya gazes for a moment more at the temporarily fallen knight. 
Then she and her granddad put away the four pieces and the board, and as three generations of the house, we walk back to our people. Eric Del Carlo has been selling his fiction for over two decades. His short stories have appeared in Asimov's, Strange Horizons, and many, many other venues. His novels, both solo and collaborative, have been published by Ace Books, Dark Star Books, Loose Id, and other houses. His latest book is The Golden Gate is Empty, written with his father, Vic Del Carlo, and it's currently available from White Cat Publishing. Eric is a native Californian and a Hurricane Katrina refugee. Find him on Facebook for comments and questions. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.